All right, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Stacks Ring Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel DeBrock, and today I'm sitting down with uh, Stuart Locke, and essentially we're going to talk about what makes a good coach. So first off, Stu, thanks so much for jumping on, man. Of course. Yeah, so um, essentially just to kind of intro the conversation, uh, I made a post a little while ago talking about um, strength coaches and why, in my perspective, strength coaches need to be, you know, or should be strong. Um, in order to kind of be a coach. And so there is a little bit more context around it, but neither really here nor there. We'll kind of get into the weeds of it as we get going. But uh, can you just give yourself a little bit of an introduction for maybe people who aren't familiar with you? Sure. Uh, so my name's uh, Stuart Locke. I'm the co-owner of Kodiak Barbell. Uh, we do powerlifting coaching, uh, nutrition, uh, bodybuilding, uh, and then we also prep people for uh, special operations selection uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, we do military fitness. We prep people for TAC team, OPP TAC team, all kinds of stuff. Um, but lion's share of our work is um, powerlifting coaching and you know powerlifting nutrition. Awesome. And they also have a really dope clothing brand, just FYI. Yeah, it's it's uh, that's how we advertise because we don't know how to advertise. So we make shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so essentially, uh, I, I figured the best way to start would be um i've got the post here so i'm just going to read it it'll take like maybe a second and then uh Stu, if you just wanted to kind of um i guess share your thoughts on on what i was saying sure. um, we can kind of dive into it so um here's the post i just took the transcript since it was a video so i wrote uh there is an ongoing debate regarding whether or not you need to be strong as a good strength coach the funny thing about this is it's really a conversation that's limited to strength sports no one in their right minds would consider Hiring a boxing coach who has never boxed, a gymnast who has never uh, competed, and no one would make a desk jockey a team leader in the Navy SEALs. There's wisdom that comes with experience, and all the education in the world can't make up for that. For some reason, this is limited to, sorry, for some reason, every time I say this, people get up in arms. They ask questions like, well, how strong do you need to be? Which is a low-level tactic to undermine the basic premise of what I'm trying to say and what we all intuitively know to some extent. In order to be a great strength coach, you do need to have skin in the game. Um, there, there's some other stuff that I said, but essentially that's kind of the the gist of it. I don't necessarily think we need to kind of go all into it. But uh, so essentially, yeah, I, I think that there are certain things that experience um, only kind of experience gives. And then uh, I don't want to kind of mischaracterize what your perspective is. So you can feel free to kind of just take it. From there. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the way that I view this is that. Um, there's definitely a, a, a sort of bravado and chest beating that we only really find um, inherent to untested powerlifting that really doesn't exist in many, if any, other strength sports um, and definitely doesn't exist in Olympic weightlifting, right? So, um, you know, we have, when we look at other subsets of barbell sports, right, we look at Olympic weightlifting, a lot of, you know, the best Olympic weightlifting coaches were mediocre weightlifters themselves, um, or were sports scientists, right? Um, you know, if you look at Ivan Abadajev, like Ivan Abadajev was not an exceptional weightlifter by any means, but he coached more world champions than anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you look at uh, Boris Shako, he's primarily a sports scientist, and he's the winningest powerlifting coach in history. No one else has won more gold medals, you know, at World Games than Boris Shako. Um, you know, and I think what powerlifting gets wrong that a lot of other sports have started to realize is, it has to be a case by case basis and it has to be an N of one, right? So you look at, for instance, like when we go to boxing, right? 
you know, you made the, you made the comparison that, um, you know, people wouldn't hire a, a boxing coach who's never boxed, but look at Mike Tyson's coach, custom auto custom auto was like a very mediocre amateur boxer. And he coached arguably one of the greatest heavyweight boxers in human history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we look to um, a hypothesis like this, we have to first look to evidence that can violate the hypothesis. And I think um, what falls apart is that in tested powerlifting, there's tons of coaches who are shitty lifters and great coaches. Um, And in untested powerlifting, there are less of those, but that doesn't mean that what is common or what is accepted in untested powerlifting is normal across all of powerlifting um, and is normal across strength sports and is normal across other types of sports, right? It's like Bill Belichick is not, was never an exceptional football player. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Bill Belichick ever played football beyond high school, but no one's going to argue he's not one of the greatest coaches in the history of football. Right. Yeah, and so I actually agree with with a lot of the points. Um, I guess from my perspective, when I'm looking at what's generalizable, that's where I see a little bit of uh, a delineation between our perspectives and these things. So sure. when I look at... Uh, Boroshiko, for instance. So Boroshiko is a great example of this. He He's a master of sport. And so essentially the master of sport designation in Russia is the highest designation. I'm sure you already know this, that you can get, but it changes every quadrennial. So um, for instance, the reason why I think he's a slightly, he's definitely an exception to the rule uh, because he gained his experience working with an already exceptional team of Russian national athletes who were hand-selected, and they went through the actual sports system of Russia. So that's the first thing. Second, he, he coached alongside, and his mentors were guys like Prolepin, Med, uh, uh, Medvedev, um, David Riegert, uh, all of these guys who were very, very high-level uh, Olympic champions or Olympic medalists at some point, and were also phenomenal coaches. And so he was able to learn with these guys. Same thing with uh, Abhijayev. Like you said, he also learned from Abhijayev. And so... Um, I guess where I'm looking at this is like, if you learn from someone else, where did they learn from? And if they learn from someone else, where did they learn from? So at some point down the line, someone has to have actual experience, hands-on experience in in the sport. Now, I think the thing that should be clarified is sort of what what, what sort of quantifies or how are we going to quantify what strong is, Mm -hmm. right? So the thing is like one of the things that I was trying to say in the post, and I did mention it in terms of like dots, is I don't have a set limit on on how strong an individual needs to be, right? Because the underlying premise is you just need to have skin in the game and you have to be able to demonstrate results, right? So mm-hmm. that's sort of where I see it. And from from the standpoint of like Boroshiko, uh, Abhijayev, some of those guys, they're definitely outliers. So, you know, the way that I kind of see this playing out is like sort of how like DOMS works in, in hypertrophy. It's like, does DOMS as a sole mechanism is, or not mechanism, sorry, as a, as a sole variable that you're, you're tracking, is that going to be a reliable indicator of muscle growth? No, but can it be a decent proxy for stimulus? If you combine that with other variables? Absolutely. And I think even Mike Israel did a great job at, at kind of talking about that, where it's like, okay, if you're not growing and you're never sore, you're there, you're not fucking doing enough. Right. Mm-hmm. You're always super sore and you're not growing, then you're probably doing a little too much, or you know, you've got reds or something like that's going on, right? So I think it is a decent proxy, but I don't think that as a standalone variable, it's going to be the sole determining factor whether or not you're a good coach, right? 
Yeah, and, and I think so. And 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 just just to touch on kind of the Russian sporting system too, and and, and something that um, I think is important to be said is that Russian sports science developed from essentially a meat grinder, right? Which is they had a hypothesis, they had a national sporting, they had national sporting organizations, and they were able to put ten thousand people through X and see what happened. Right. And so what I would say is in the absence of personal experience, what you are essentially going to need is or in the absence of your personal experience under the bar, what you're going to need is an extreme amount of experience with other individuals. And I think um, I think it has to be it, it can be both. Uh, but oftentimes it, it, it can it ends up being one or the other, because I think that a lot of lifters who if you're biasing your own training or if you're really, really focusing on your own training, you probably don't have a super big roster of athletes that you particularly care about because in order to really push to the limits in the sport, you kind of have to be selfish, right? It, it, we find that in strongman. We find that in bodybuilding. We find that in, in powerlifting. You kind of have to be self-absorbed. That's that's There's no way around it. Um, and so I think it's almost the, the the issue that I find with that is that there's I know so many really strong people who are also horrible coaches, right? It's like they are such genetic outliers that it's like if you do what they did, you would just fucking explode. So and, and I think that that's that's also an important point to be made that, you know, there are so many people who are so bad at coaching and so physically gifted that doing what they do is a is a recipe for disaster and you know and it, and when given the option to work with someone who has a ton of experience with athletes and very little personal experience versus someone who maybe is like top five in a weight class but is a fucking idiot i'm gonna choose the person who has worked with a ton of people before because the really strong guy knows what works for one person and the person who has worked with a ton of athletes has a litany of evidence you know in 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 their personal career to show that what they're doing works. So I think the the reason why I uh, why I have issue with it is because I know how stupid so many of the top lifters are. Not so many, but some of the top lifters are. And the last thing that I would want people to do is to go to them, have a horrible coaching experience, potentially get hurt and then be turned off of powerlifting. Yeah, and and that definitely makes sense, right? So um I guess my my statement that an individual should be strong as uh, as part of the qualification standard doesn't necessarily assume that the inverse is automatically true, right? So if you're strong, that's an automatic qualifier. Mm -hmm. um, so the way I've always broken it down is like, one, you should be strong. That's going to be kind of a relative subjective determination. Two, um, or if you're not strong, you should have at one point been strong or athletic or something along those lines, you know? Uh, two, you need to demonstrate a high level of education, whether it's formal or informal, that's fine. And then three, you need to be able to demonstrate that you can develop an athlete, not just adopt an already high level athlete. So mm -hmm. that's a big difference too, because I think a lot of, like to kind of go against my point to some extent, I do know a handful of very high level athletes who aren't great, but they've adopted a lot of high level athletes because they are very strong, mm -hmm. right? And so that attracts them, right? Um, for me, the way that I see it is like, if you're, if you're, if you have your, your, you know, if you have some skin in the game and you're training, right. And 
you might not be the strongest person in the world, but in order to figure out what works, you do need to have some sort of actual experience. Like a great example of this is, let's say you have two individuals, one person can squat 800, the other person can squat 200 pounds. And you get both to do a single at 80%, right? The person who's squatting 800 or 80% of 800 pounds is expending, I mean, if we would just want to do like a really, really rudimentary kind of like explanation of physics for four, four times the amount of energy, right? Yeah. Um, it would actually end up being more for various reasons, but just strictly speaking, to keep it simple, that's roughly what it would be. And so there's no way to really understand how fucking brutal that is unless you've actually done something like that. Like 200 pounds on the bar, like there's physiological limitations for, for a human being. And so when you're unracking 200 pounds, that might be your one rep max, but you're nowhere near your body's physical capacity to tolerate loads before actually like basically just fucking crushing or disintegrating, right? Whereas yep. an individual who's squatting 800 pounds, that's a completely different feel. The fatigue that's generated, the metabolic fatigue, if you get them to do an AMRAP at 80%, you know, is completely different. And there's definitely things you can learn from other people, but there are certain things that you can't. And one of the constraints is, I mean, if we just look at it from a research standpoint, there's not a lot of research on programming. There, there's not really any research on programming, realistically, right? It's just comparing one program to another and saying, this is better, right? But, but there's not actual a lot of data on actual program design. There's not a lot of data on, like, even just exercise. I mean, like, you try and look up research on uh, SSB squats, there's like a handful of studies, right? Mm -hmm. And it's looking at very specific things. So... It's like, where are you going to get your information from? Where are you going to get your knowledge from? And there's a lot of places that you can do that, but without your actual input and your experimentation, your investment in the training process, in my experience, there's, there's or sorry, in my opinion, there's something that's independently valuable about personal experience that you just can't gain through communication, you can't gain through books, you can't gain through seminars or reading or any of that stuff. It's just something that has to be an actual experience. Yeah, and I think to your point too, right? So for instance, like, you know, I think the most I've squatted in the meet is seven, like low sevens. Like I think I squatted 716 or 722 in sleeves. Not much, right? I was 255, 260 pounds. Like I think that maybe is like top 20 in Canada in that weight class now. Like it's not, at the time, I think it was like sixth or seventh and that was four years ago. So it's fucking shit now because there's 198s doing that. Um, you know, but... So for me, like, and you know, like I've pulled maybe like 780 in the gym, I've benched like 430 or something. Like I'm not, I'm strong, but I'm not like, act, you know, I'm not like strong, strong. I'm stronger than everyone else in a mediocre gym. Um, and so for me, what I did in order to try to develop my coaching ability is I would look at all of the best lifters and I would kind of like, because I follow very few power lifters on Instagram and this is going to sound bad, but like the moment I stopped learning from someone's training or them posting their training, I kind of stopped following them because I'm like, this has ceased to be useful for me. Um, and so what I would do is I would look at like, for instance, like really high level lifters. So I'd look at like a really high level 242 and I'd be like, okay, when are they taking their heaviest squat? Like when do they start their taper? Like, okay, well, this guy's like about this size and he's like pretty fucking jacked and he's taking his heavy squat like three weeks out. And then I'd look like the super fat dude. And then I'd be like, all right, well, this really fat dude took his heaviest squat like five weeks out. And this like guy that's at 275 took his heavy squat like four weeks out. And then I would, between all of those things, 
I, and all of those data points, I, you know, I started to develop a, a roster of stronger athletes. Um, and I started to just try it out with my guys be like, okay, well, I'll see what works best. Cause I haven't really, I haven't squatted more than, you know, 325 kilos in sleeves. So I don't know what it's like to squat more than 325 kilos in sleeves. I have, I have, you know, one of my guys has squatted 365 in sleeves, but I don't know what it fucking takes to get there, but I can, I can look at all this other information coming in and be like, okay, these people are kind of around his size. These people kind of take their heaviest lifts all around this same time. So that should reasonably, if all else is the same, have us be peaked on the data. And then we, we, we run that hypothesis through and then we run that hypothesis through. And then, you know, for instance, in his last meet, we took his last heavy squat, like two and a half weeks out. And we tapered from there because he's always typically had a very aggressive taper. So he's taken his heaviest lift and then he's had a really relatively heavy and aggressive taper into the meet. Um, and it didn't work. It was, it was a really long meet, you know, it was a 13 hour meet, um, which definitely doesn't help. Uh, but he just, he was flat, right? He hit his second. It did not move to the same speed that it did in the gym. And I was like, he's fucking flat. And then bench was, you know, we pulled out a small PR, but nothing great. And then, um, deads, we just, no matter how much halo and fiber energy you take, you're not going to pull your best after 13 hours of lifting. Right. So, um, you know, and then he fell flat there. And so for us, you know, I was like, all right, well, that one didn't work. Right. We had a warm up meet. That's really, really good that we had a warm up meet, but that one didn't fucking work. So now we're going to walk back those heavy lifts by maybe four or five days. Cause he was still, he was still explosive on his opener. He still moved well, but the moment we started to get above that kind of, you know, 95% threshold, it's just not there. Like I know what he's supposed to look like if he's peaked well, and that wasn't it, you know? So then I had a conversation with him and I was like, all right, well, we're going to have to pull things back. And these are kind of the dates on which we'll do. And so now instead of two and a half weeks out, we're going to do it three weeks out. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to hit his heaviest pull further out. And then we're going to have a heavier taper. Um, and, it, and it's just, you know, for, because I think the, one of the issues that I find with this kind of precept or this, this understanding is that the belief that there's just like a formula, right? It's like, well, 275s take their heaviest squat like four weeks out, you know, 242s take their heaviest squats like three weeks out, you know, 220s take their heaviest squats like two weeks out. Like, because you can have a fat 220 and you can have a jack 220 and they're going to take their heaviest squats at different points. And so at the end of the day, like the best powerlifting coaches are the ones who develop like an N of one program and take into account all that specific athletes limitations you know, like how aerobically fit they are and then have that determine, you know, what their training is going to look like in the off season and then through prep. But I didn't, I wasn't able to get that experience on my own. So I just had to look to others and then I had to try it with my guys and be like, well, I kind of missed the mark there. And I, and I think that's the big thing is like, you're going to fuck up sometimes before you really fucking nail it. But then once you nail it, you know that it's probably always going to work like that for that athlete. And then you don't have to think you're like, all right, well, we just know that on these dates, you hit your heaviest numbers and we taper. Yeah. And, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And that's honestly something that I do as well. I think pretty much every good coach does that right. To some extent. Um, I guess when I'm looking at this and when I'm looking at that, that sort of piece of anecdote, you're coming from a background of having squatted over 700 in sleeves. Now, like you said, that's not like elite of the elite, but that's fucking strong. You know, that's, that's still very strong. And so would you have 
the ability to recognize what's important in the individual strategies and be able to extrapolate the the really pertinent information and be able to apply it as effectively if you didn't have that real world experience and my my opinion is no and i mean you know even we can look at something as simple as a definition and how a definition changes as an individual gains more experience so for instance someone's understanding of what strength is will evolve as they become more experienced right like if you tell someone strength is a skill they're like what the fuck does that mean you know and then you start explaining you know about internal versus external stability requirements you start talking about motor coordination and proprioception and you know permanence or non-permanence of skill and, and different things like that right and all of a sudden it's like oh wow okay now i understand why increasing my strength on this activity which looks pretty similar to this one may not have any sort of dynamic correspondence right mm -hmm. or or conversely like these two don't really look all that similar but it actually does have a high correspondence because of this particular context but mm -hmm. it's very difficult to understand that without the requisite experience and so like you're someone who is experienced enough to do that and that's sort of um kind of that's kind of what i'm saying right like your ability to do that is predicated on a pre-existing knowledge base right and when it comes to when it comes to let's say interpreting what other people are are doing as well there's a big there, there's there's a risk of a couple of things so one there's a risk of like kind of being in an echo chamber right mm -hmm. but admittedly that does happen regardless of whether you're experienced or not so you know I'm not sure exactly how that would play into the conversation, but the other potential risk is like, let's say someone like Louis Simmons, right? Louis Simmons, regardless of what anyone else says, like he's a fucking good coach. You know, mm -hmm. he knows how to make people strong as shit. You know, like the number of world champions he had just in that one county or world record holders, he had one county is crazy. And statistically it's incredibly improbable. So there's clearly something that he's doing that's very good. Um, but i mean i don't even think he can make it like one conversation without saying 15 things that are just factually incorrect yeah you know, if, you, if you read his books there's a lot of stuff in there about his books even even talking about biomechanics and physics that's actually just straight up wrong mm -hmm. however that doesn't prevent him from being like a super elite coach so when you're when you're looking to other people to gain this insight you have to be able to again have a certain amount of experience to be able to filter through things and be like do they actually mean that or are they kind of talking about this and assigning causality where it doesn't necessarily apply and mm -hmm. there's a huge margin of error there if you don't have the prerequisites to to be able to do that right same thing if you're sifting through research you look at the conclusion you're like oh that's what it is but if you're actually reading research you look at the methods you look at you know whether or not the methods actually align with the intent like the 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 initial hypothesis what they're trying to determine in the first place you look at their their statistical models you actually evaluate that then you look at the results and see whether or not that aligns with the conclusion stated in the, in the paper and it's like a lot of the times it actually doesn't you know mm -hmm. you wouldn't know that unless you actually had that experiential background of doing lit reviews or, or doing research yourself and so i think there is a certain level of, of experience that needs to be had before you can really go out into learning right and that's i mean we see this in like in the trades you do your apprenticeship in in if you're a medical student you do your uh, residency i think um if you're doing like some other program you have like an internship and so you know we have these in most forms of education and so so you know there is some sort of independently valuable aspect of experience and the one thing that i would say just to kind of i guess sort of emphasize that is like 
you know, strength is a fairly easy thing to develop for most people. You know, I'm not a big believer in non-responders in terms of like how, how frequently these people are turning up. I, I just do not buy it at all. And so, you know, if we can say that, hey, strength is a relatively easy thing to develop. Well, how is it that a strength coach isn't that strong? Because like you, like you said, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about the differentiation between natural or, or, or tested or whatever. Um, but like, cause I, I don't necessarily follow like the two really, I mm -hmm. just kind of follow individuals, I guess. I don't know so much follow the sport, but you know, like, um, if, if this is generally fairly easy to do, mm -hmm. I would agree. Then how is it that, that individual through their own experimentation isn't getting substantially stronger from where they were even right. Yeah, like and I think squatting, I was at 200, and then my best was about 650, 660 ish, you know, and it's like, mm -hmm. that's not insane, but it's a lot better than it was when it started. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's a, that's a valid point. And I think something that is lost on a lot of people, some people just don't care to be strong. Um, right. And, and so you, you know, you look at someone, for instance, like Steve Denovi, right? Steve Denovi, um, has a master's of business administration, started working as a personal trainer because he was passionate about it. But he's also, you know, he does his own training and stuff, but he's not, he does it because he likes it, but he, he he doesn't really, you probably, you know, if you asked him, he's probably not fucking pushing himself to failure on everything. Probably, probably doesn't have that, you know, whatever screw loose that you and I have, feeling the need to do all of these things. He probably doesn't have that, you know, and for him, I think in many ways he does live vicariously through his athletes because he coaches some of the best drug test lifters in the world. Um, and so I think there is that point is like strength is easy to develop, but some people just don't fucking care. Right. It's like, as much as I can tell my dad about the benefits of strength training and I get my dad signed up with a personal trainer, my dad doesn't care how much he squats. Right. Like my dad could be tangentially interested in it. And you know, my dad could want to maybe, be a powerlifting ref and ref at powerlifting meets, but he might just not fucking care. And I think that's what's lost on a lot of people is that we have a hard time looking at other people and be like, well, why don't you care? And it's like, because some people just don't, and that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and if that person in the absence of their own ability has developed others to quite a high level of ability, then does it really matter? Yeah, so from a coaching perspective, no, it, it, it doesn't. Like, if they're doing a great job, they're demonstrating their ability as a coach. I would just say that that's definitely an, an outlier case, right? It's kind of like yeah. Boroshiko, or I mean, I mean, I'm not sure who the guy you brought up was. Like I said, I don't mm -hmm. really follow powerlifting that much, um, which is kind of ironic, I guess. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, like, in those instances, you have outliers. But if I were to make, like, a generalizable recommendation to someone, you know, if someone were to ask me, like, hey, how do I become a good coach? Um, one of the things that I would recommend is, hey, like, get your feet wet. Like, go fucking lift. Go compete. Like, know what you're doing. Know what these things feel like. And a great example is, is you know, for me, like, I was exposed to the idea of failure training a long, long time ago. But every explanation that was made in support of failure training i just i was like i don't i don't think it's very strong you know and then even when i would look at the literature on failure training even that is very nebulous it's not as like clear and and defined as you might think because they're comparing different types of failure you know like a concentric failure versus an eccentric failure versus like a, 
a range of motion loss or a whole variety of different things, you know, like an RPE 10 is not technically true failure. True failure is concentric failure. So there's a variety of inconsistencies in terms of what they're actually comparing. And so when I look at that, I'm like, there's not a good case to be made for it. But then I started doing some failure training with like some of my, you know, ancillary work. And I was like, oh fuck, like this is really great for me because I love beating the shit out of myself, but this actually allows me to do it in a way that's really productive and it actually reduces wear and tear on my body because I'm having to do less total volume. And, and mm -hmm. there's a variety of other things. So it's like, but without having that like level of experience, I would never necessarily be able to know that. And so if, if I'm looking at like making a recommendation for how do you become a good coach, I would have to say like, you need to get your feet wet. You need to know what these things feel like. You know, mm -hmm. now I, I don't, I'm not a believer that like, you know, oh, if you program something for your athlete, you have to have done it yourself. I don't really believe that. You know, because there's lots of stuff that I haven't done that, that I will program for an athlete because I have a certain amount of experience to understand how these things fit in just the same way that you do with, with your clients. Right. But there is that base level of experience. And I guess, again, that is sort of a subjective determination of where mm -hmm. does that experience need to sit before you can, you know, make those things. And so, although there are people who do that and are successful, I don't know that I'm really convinced that a strength coach who trains consistently doesn't care about getting stronger. They might not care as much as like the guy who's willing to take whatever or like, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? But I'm, I don't know that I'm convinced that that's the primary bottleneck for most of those individuals who are kind of outliers and still. Yeah. Trying. I mean, at the end of the day, like it comes down to, um, you know, if we are to try to make some type of like a blanket recommendation, so it's like, if you're going to be looking for a coach, these are things that should be satisfied. I think in the absence of personal ability, you have to have done a lot with a lot of people. Um, and the one thing that I am very proud of in myself is that I have coached a lot of people, right? So, you know, when I, I started working in person in 2017, and I worked my ass off with a bunch of general population people to develop some ability because I was like, you know what? If I can get someone and they come in and they squat 135 and then at the end they squat 325, that's fine. But what if I get someone and they come in and they can't do a bodyweight squat? How do I get that person better? Because it was this huge fucking gap in my personal ability. And I've never, ever experienced the inability to squat bodyweight. No matter how fucked up I've been, no matter how bad I hurt my back, it, it was never an issue. And so, I was like, this is a personal gap and this is something that I need to develop. And I think what a lot of coaches who, because for me, like I enjoy training and training to me is fun. I do not care whatsoever, not even close to the same degree about my training that I used to. I do it because I feel really gross when I don't. And I do it because I like to make small progressions and eke out small PRs and, and, you know, go in and just keep skin in the game but I don't have the same drive that I used to. Um, and so for me, I live, I, I take a lot more pride in the coaching aspect. Right. And I try to develop myself more from the coaching aspect. And even for instance, if you look at, you know, I think like the, the problem that we'll run into is, you know, you look at, for instance, if you have really great or strong lifters who are fucking light, right. Let's say they compete at 181, a really good squat at 181 might be 675 pounds. That person doesn't know what it's like to squat 800 pounds or 900 pounds, but they've developed this really high degree of relative strength 
and they should be able to get people there because they kind of know because these things all kind of go together, right? So you look at, for instance, Sean Noriega. Sean Noriega coaches a bunch of high-level lifters, and he coaches a bunch of uh, – he coaches a couple very high-level untested lifters, right? So there's a guy named Justin. I can't remember what the hell his last name is. He's an Italian dude. But the dude squatted like close to nine at 242 in reps. Sean doesn't know what squatting 900 pounds is like. Sean might never know what squatting 900 pounds is like. Um, but Sean has taken enough of a, you know, taken enough pride in his coaching that he's figured out how to get somebody there. He's like, okay, well, I kind of know. So I can, I can look at these other things. And I think at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to is like, it just, you have to have this willingness to want to get better and you have to have this willingness to try. And I think in the absence of personal ability, that willingness to want to get better and that willingness to try has to be like through the roof. And for me, from like a professional development perspective now as a coach, I care a lot more about developing myself professionally now as a coach than I do my own training. That's just, we have seasons in our life. That's where I've ended up. That's where I find my fulfillment. And that was a conversation I had with myself, you know, probably two years ago when I went exclusively online was like, you know what, if I want to do this, I want to be the best at this. And that's going to require me to be at least somewhat unbalanced in that regard. So I think there is that there is that portion as well, which is that like a lot of people just don't have the mental energy to devote to these two kind of disparate things, right? It's like, I, I know very few people who can do both at a really, really, really high level. Yeah, it's super difficult. I mean, the thing about Sean Noriega though is he, he still squats 650, right? So like he can't squat 800 or whatever, but again, in my perspective, that sort of surpasses that baseline level where it's like okay you you've you've been doing this for long enough to i guess know, for you and i guess a good question for that is what for you let's say we'll go under 200 pounds and over 200 pounds what would you define as strong enough to know what the fuck you're talking about yeah see that's the thing because i i don't necessarily look at it exactly like that right like and i mean we can start moving in i guess to what does qualify a coach mm -hmm. so I, I have those kind of three parameters that i that i stated at the beginning Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily like a hard cutoff of like this is what it is and if you're below this then you're shitty right it's more of like sort of a gray zone let's say okay right? and i haven't i haven't sat down and really thought about it enough to give like a definitive answer on that right but realistically like how how heavy is sean noriega i just uh, had to look it up on 181. 181 okay so he's 181 he squats 650. that's that's quite a lot right like that's that's objectively fairly strong um and so yeah I'm, i mean i'm not i'm not sure like because a lot of my like taught like i've i've coached right now i think i have three international lead athletes right and they're all fucking stronger than me you know except for the girl but the girl's like qualifying she, she's yeah. stronger than me like body weight wise or whatever right so so it's like they're all stronger than me but i have enough experience to know how to navigate those things right and so i don't have a definitive answer of like you need 450 dots you need 400 dots you need this you need that and actually larry asked me as well and i was like i don't know i just kind of throw out a random number i think i said 450 dots but i'm not really hard set on anything like that it's more just a matter of like you need to be able to demonstrate that you yourself can achieve something you don't need to achieve the best like if i look at eric helms is a great example you know he's got a phd super fucking smart he's coached tons of athletes and he's a professional bodybuilder now will he ever be like an ifbb pro or someone at the olympia level no you know i mean he's natural 
but he's he's fucking jacked. Like you look at him, and you're like, that dude is peeled, and he's got a really really great level of conditioning. So, is he at the absolute top of of you know male natural bodybuilding? No, but he's been in the game long enough and demonstrated that this is something that he can actually do, and he knows how to implement in his own situation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit more of like a of a concept than it is like a hard lined. Here's a good coach one deviation to the right or the left and now you're no longer a good coach, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a really, really reasonable way of looking at it. And I think, and, and now that we're kind of parsing this out and talking through this together, I think for me, what would matter more than the strength is how long you've been doing it. Right. Because yeah, we, yeah. we do know a lot of people um, who haven't actually been training for that long and they just take to a barbell quick and they get super strong, super quickly. And they've probably never experienced any real meaningful plateau. And so for them, it's just this thing came very naturally to them. They're good at it. And we grow as people and we grow as coaches through difficulties and an inability to progress, right? Those plateaus. Mm -hmm. um, and, if, and if you're working with someone who has never experienced any of those ever, mm -hmm. right? They could be really, really strong. And then they're just fucking useless. And they may have gone from a you know, completely like completely untrained. And then they had a 1700 pound total in two years. And then they had a 2k total in five because I know people who've had that happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, I had a, there's a, a dude that I know that trains at generation strength. And like the dude just like got up to four Oh five on bench. And then was like, I don't want to go any heavier than this. And so we just started doing sets of five. And then when sets of five got too easy, he started doing sets of eight. And then when sets of eight got too easy, he started doing sets of 10. And the dude's like a 550 pound bencher, but he just never went over 405. So it's like, he has no fucking clue, right? He's like, I don't know. You just, you know, when the fives are too easy, you do the eights. And then when the eights are too easy, you do the tens. And then you go and you max out. It's like, yeah. well, that, that, that's not how meat prep works. <laughs> um, but, and, and, and that's the thing. So I, I think it's just like, you know, I've been training since it's 2022. I think I've been training since 2007. So 15 years. Um, and you know, 15 years of, of trying to consistently gain body weight, 15 years of trying to push the envelope, um, and, you know, playing very high level sports in addition to that. So I think a lot of my ability comes from the experience and comes from like being able to progress in spite of all of these other, you know, pitfalls that I encountered. And I think that's more than anything, what would, what, what I think qualifies me as a good coach. Um, and it has a lot less to do with my strength, right? Because I don't think if I took 200 pounds off my total, and but I had the same level of experience that I would be that much worse as a coach. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that that is something that did get you to where you are though, right? Like for instance, yeah. for myself, um, I've had two very serious back injuries in mm -hmm. my life. And the the last one that i had was several years ago i think it was 2018 or something like that and i was in i was on crutches in a back brace for about 11 months almost a year so mm -hmm. it, was, it was it was pretty fucking rough like i couldn't lay down i couldn't doctor was like you can't have sex you can't sit down you so just lay down. just, just from like a morbid curiosity perspective what happened to your back because i like talking about back injuries <laughs> i I ruptured three discs. I had like um, sciatic, like nerve damage, and then I had like my SI joint got all fucked up. Like it was just, it was just a fucking. Mess. Was it like a traumatic event or? Uh, yeah, yeah, and it was. I was yeah, 
squatting or deadlifting i can't remember which one um yeah yeah i don't remember which one but i was i was lifting and then i was fine and then i felt a little weird and i was like huh and i reached over to grab like a water bottle something felt off but then that was just it and it just fucking blew up and so it was, it was awful but um but now ever since then it's like a lot you know my my attention to detail in terms of injury risk management has completely changed you know as as a byproduct of that and so like all of the setbacks that you've encountered 100 percent contributed to your understanding of the literature your understanding of the application of just training and coaching in general even just how you communicate with your athletes like there are certain things where like i would when i was doing physio because initially like i went to physio because i was like i was fucking scared man and mm -hmm. so i went to physio and i was with them for like several months and they were like okay stand on this bosu ball and do this and i was like i don't think this is enough man like i'm a big dude like i'm not fucking getting anything from this yeah. it's not enough and they're like no just trust us we need to do this and so then after like several months i was like fuck this i'm doing it myself so i just mm -hmm. did it myself and i got better and that's not a broad recommendation by any stretch but i think i just said bad therapist is really what it was mm -hmm. they just didn't understand working with an athlete at the time or like my my i guess mentality around it as well like i'm not super cautious and i don't have like aversions around those things right but i think that's where a lot of that experience comes in so we, we've talked a lot about um you know the different perspectives and mm -hmm. honestly i think probably we agree a little bit more and i could be wrong so feel free to correct me i think probably we agree a little bit more than maybe it sounds i think yes. it's, it's like where we sort of set those lines in the sand on each variable that we're kind of discussing and how much weight we put into it um, some of the definitions and like what what certain things mean to either of us i guess but um you know so for you how how do you classify like a good coach when you're looking for a coach if you kind of set some some parameters around that for an individual who's looking who doesn't have any experience either in training or in fitness in general like how would you go about recommending uh, someone to them yeah so i think it, it you first and foremost you have to contextualize where that individual is in their training career and then that's going to that's going to determine the level to which that coach needs to be developed, right? Because over the course of people's training careers, and I really, really, really believe this is that the coach that might get you from intermediate to advanced is honestly probably not going to be the coach that gets you from advanced to world class. And 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 these things happen, and sometimes, and very rarely, we develop a perfect storm where a coach can get someone from "I can't do a bodyweight squat" to "I'm a world champion." I don't think that that happens very often, and I think those people are, are very, very few and far between. But I think you know, if you have someone who's coming into it, and we'll take my some of my wife's friends, right? Some of my wife's friends, like you know, she has this one friend, big, strong Dutch girl. Uh, just does like fucking body pump and spin class, right? But I guarantee that fucking girl, the first time she puts a bar on her back, she's probably going to squat 225. Yeah. And you know what? She can probably be with kind of a whatever coach to get her from 225 to 405. And then she might need to specialize a little bit more at that point. But I think, you know, to be able to make a blanket recommendation, like there's very few coaches I know, very few coaches I know who would actually be able to deal with most people across most ability levels um you know and so what i would say is for a beginner coach you have to have someone who has taken people from completely detrained to a high level of competency in the patterns in the movements and done that repeatedly over time with males and females fat and skinny 
right? All of those things. Uh, for an intermediate level lifter, I would say that it probably likely just has to be someone that has more experience than you um, and has more guidance to offer you than you can offer yourself and just someone to keep you accountable. And now when you get into the advanced level, the 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 thing that I, I find is different about advanced level lifters is oftentimes you get there with a fair degree of baggage. And so you have to have someone who can deal with that shit, right? So you have to have someone who's dealt with, you know, like at, at this point, like I've, I've broken my back, right? I herniated and fractured L3, L4, L5. And I've torn both of my quads and I've torn my right back and I've broken my left shoulder blade, right? Like I have all these issues. So... For me, the coaches who maybe have gotten me to this point are not going to, unless it's a very rare occurrence, going to be the person who gets me to the next stage. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finding, you know, even through my own experience, which is, which is vast, and even calling on the resources that I have available to me, it's like, you know what, like, this is actually a bit of a humdinger. I don't know how to, I don't know how to get myself to be able to train consistently. And this is, you know, this is, my 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 average pain is, is increasing on a you know month by month basis. My lifts are kind of neither here nor there. Like something's got to change and I don't know what that is. You know, and so you know, I think from an advanced level lifter, you have to have someone who has dealt with a lot of people and a lot of shit, right? You know, like dealt with pec tears, dealt with quad tears, dealt with you know bicep reattachments and and figure out and, and has a protocol for all of those things. Because when you're flying close to the sun, like that shit's gonna happen hopefully you're lucky enough that it doesn't, but that shit's going to happen. And then if you, if you find yourself after that point with a coach that has no fucking clue how to deal with any of those things, it doesn't matter if they've coached people to your level because now they can't coach you because you're not the same lifter anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, there's a really crucial point to be made there. It's like, well, fuck man. Like I, I, I couldn't, if, if I had, myself come to me as a lifter i'd i'd have to just be like you know what i'm gonna eat some humble pie right now we can kind of try to work through this together but right now i'm gonna tell you that like i don't know how to get you like right now i don't know what the exercises that we're gonna put together to have you be able to successfully complete a training week right because it's like I, I have this extensive injury history and I have these things that, you know, have, have kind of gotten worse and kind of gotten better and, you know, all these other things are occurring. So I think it's just you have to you can't make a broad recommendation. It's like this is a good coach for anyone. It's like this is a good coach for a beginner. This is a good coach for an intermediate. This is a good coach for an advanced level lifter. And, you know, you have to make delineations in each one of those subcategories. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, very likely because, I mean, like someone who is coaching people at an advanced level probably is not taking on anywhere near as many clients at a novice level. I mean, I know for myself, it's certainly not as interesting. Like, don't get me wrong, like a certain, probably like maybe, I don't know, 30% or something like that of my athletes are, they're not gen pop, like they're stronger, but they're like, let's say intermediate, maybe early stage intermediate, you know? Um, but the ones that are always most interesting are the ones who are like, or usually anyways, are the ones who are like super fucking strong. It's like, how are we going to get this person stronger? And so those are the, the ones that I find a little bit more interesting. And I mean, I don't actually even really take on clients right now. So mm. like the only time I would is if someone was like really interesting to me. And that's mm -hmm. probably realistically just where I'm at. It's probably not going to be someone who's from Gen Pop. So 
like that's actually a really interesting distinction that you made and i i would probably agree with that as well um i guess i didn't really think about it like that because i guess the the kind of problems that you're going to see with gem pop as well are are going to take a certain level of like individual to kind of manage them because they're not going to be like training related problems they're going to be adherence based problems you know Hey, I, know I said I'd come three times a week or whatever, but I decided just to not. And you're like, oh, why? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, motherfucker. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I'm like, I'll, I'll even give you the example of my wife, right? So she grew up doing high level gymnastics. Um, and so, you know, she was a gymnast all growing up. And then, you know, she did uh, kin at Queens. And then she's she went to chiropractic college. And now she's a chiropractor, right? Um, so for her, her level of an understanding of the human body and rehab and all these things is really, really, really good. And so when we started, uh, when we started dating, I was like, well, I'll just, you're just one of my clients now. I'm just going to fucking, I'm just going to train you. Right. And, you know, she had a history, she had a really bad disc injury a couple of years ago and she had a history of, of back problems and it just, we worked a little bit in person at the beginning to get her to understand some concepts. And then I just pushed her online. She'd send me videos and it just, it never progressed the way that I kind of thought it should. I was like, this is off, like something's off. And it was always like, I would, I would get these, I would get these responses to these questions coming back being like, well, I feel this here as opposed to this, blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of had the aha moment of like, oh, she's very physically competent, right? She's strong. You know, she's 123 pounds. She can, bench a plate she can pull 275 like she can do all the like from like a gen pop perspective you're like this is a good person mm -hmm. or a strong person rather um but there was just stuff where i was like i can't just get four or five videos in a session like i actually just kind of need to see you move over the course of every training session and cue you during an entire training session and so now i train her in person three times a week and her her performance has skyrocketed Right. And, and she's gotten substantially stronger. Uh, but it was because even like taking into account all the information I had, I was like, high level gymnast is a fucking doctor. All of these things knows how to move and is relatively strong. Why is this person having these issues? But it wasn't until I like spent time training with her in person. I was like, oh, like, you know, from her disc injury, right? From her disc injury, she was having like altered sensation through her left hip relative to her right hip. And so, you know, she was having issues doing single leg RDLs to her left side because she wasn't feeling it in her lateral hip, right? She was feeling it in like ish tube, high hamstring. So like, I was like, okay, like that's an issue of managing center of mass. But when you just get that information coming in, as opposed to being able to see it in person, you don't know that. And so, you know, I, I think it's just, some people just also at, aren't at the point where they can actually do online training. And when you do their intake, you might be like, this person's gonna be fucking fine. And then you're like, no, actually they're not. I actually need to see you move. And I think um, I think that's the most frustrating thing about kind of that, the, that early intermediate cohort is that if they have any kind of injury history, you're like, well, fuck, I, can't, I, I cannot deal with that through five or six videos of a session. I have to just see you move. And I have to just fix that when I see it. Yeah, there are definitely, there's, I've had a handful of those clients and there was one that I had not too many months ago. She was a bodybuilder. So she was someone who was, um, she was a professional bodybuilder. She had a pro card and uh, she, so she was like an IFBB, 
I don't even know what the freaking bikini figure, whatever one of those. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't training her for prep. Like I don't do contest prep. Um, but I do train bodybuilders um, sometimes. And so she was uh, very injured, like very, very injured. It's like her back, her right leg, her left leg, her right arm, her left elbow, her left shoulder. And you're just like, holy fuck. So it's like up and down the chain. It was just everything. And so getting her to find movements that was like that were performance permitting without enhancing her pain or at the very least not making it worse and ideally kind of pulling it back a little bit and getting it below a three out of 10 um, was real tough. Like it took, it took a couple of months of like screening. Like we, we'd be going along really well and then something would flare up and we'd go and, you know, address that things would be going well, something would flare up. And so that was really tough. And yeah, I mean, there's definitely certain times where it's like probably should just be in person. Yeah. You know, because with, with from an injury standpoint, from an injury standpoint, like I will always just refer out. I'll be like, yep, I want you to go see a, a physical therapist or a clinician. Like if I know someone in your area, I will recommend you. If I don't, I'll usually send them to like the cl clinical athlete directory or something along those lines. Um, just because it's like that's not something I want to tackle on my own, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Um but uh, yeah, man, sometimes those things can definitely be really tricky. And I mean, even the, even the in-person aspect alone, like you've heard of like compassionate touch. Yeah. We're talking about like sexual harassment here. Just so anyone who's listening, like compassionate touch is, is what they talk about as, as being one of the actual psychological benefits of like massage. You know, you're probably yeah. not getting any sort of specific physiological thing, but, but the sensation of someone actually caring about you and all that stuff is, is sometimes referred to as compassionate touch in the literature. And so... Um, not talking about like molesting anyone, but uh, even just doing something like that with your client can have a significant impact on on their perception of pain and their even like sense of self-efficacy and their idea that they may be able to get out of pain at some point. So, yeah, that's uh, I, I actually really like your your description of that of like the the beginner, intermediate, advanced. I think that's I think that's actually really good. Yeah, well, and I think it's just because at the end of the day, like I used to have like. You know, this this is my own. This is me coming coming at it from my own experiences. Like the first coach that I hired was a fucking unit, like super jacked, right? Like squatted eight forty, bench five sixty five, pulled like seven seven sixty, like like super fucking strong. And at the time, I think was like number four, number five all time at two seventy five. It was just a fucking monster. And so I, I paid for a ten week meat prep with him. And I was like, hey, these are my these are my goals. And he's like, okay. And he just sent the 10-week prep at once. And it was in a PDF. And I was like, this is kind of weird. And uh, and then I realized that it's just the same 10-week prep that he uses for everyone. Um, and I'd send my training videos to him. And I had to, it was such a fucking pain in the ass. I had to upload them to Google Drive and then put them in a folder and then share that folder with him. And then he would email me back about it. And his response was like, when you bench, you're on your toes, you should get on the balls of your feet. And then like for the next nine yeah. weeks of bench, there was nothing. And there was, there was, you know what? There was definitely some stuff that I learned from him from a programming perspective, which is essentially like you can tolerate infinitely more upper body volume than you kind of realize. Um, but there was also a lot of stuff that I just didn't learn from him, right? Like I didn't, 
I didn't understand his progressions and things. It was like I maxed out on a deficit, and then I maxed out from blocks, and then I went into the knee. I was like, okay. And like now looking back on it, I was like, that's kind of fucking stupid. Like you're gonna have inconsistent as hell technique. Like, why would you do that? Um, and then just like the way that he progressed on squats and stuff, it'd be like you do like a set of three, and then you do a set of five, and then you do uh two sets of three, and then and then like the next week would be like a set of four, and then a set of one, and then two sets of two, and it's like where is this coming? It was just like all over the place. Um, and but yeah, it's just at the end of the day, like he, I was an intermediate level lifter. And so I progressed over the course of the 10 week prep because anything would have worked. And I, I went into the meet and I think I sat, I did like a mock meet the year before at school. And I think I totaled 1325. And then I went into that meet and I totaled 1525. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had about 200 pounds of my total, but it's like, I was 21 years old or 22 years old. You know, I just finished playing university football. Like, I had a fucking bunch of muscle mass that was now not fatigued for the first time in 10 years. Like, obviously, I'm going to get a bigger total, right? Um, and so, but then, you know, and then I, I progressed from that. And then I kind of realized, like, I got to the point where I'm at now. And I'm like, no, like, there is something else here. Like, you have to, like, very few coaches have the ability to coach all of those different types of people. And once you get to that certain point, like, you have to... I've had, I've had clients who've, who've come to me and I've, you know, I work with them for a couple months. I'm like, what you need for me isn't what I'm honestly even able to offer you. And then I just suggest that they do something else. Like I had a guy that came to me and, you know, very high level lifter. He had trained in the nineties at fucking West side with Dave Tate, right. Was like an OG in powerlifting and had squatted over 700 pounds in sleeves, had pulled over 700 pounds, had benched over 400 pounds. And this dude was like, He's like almost 50 and he's still that strong. So it was like, and you know, he would, a lot of his issues, I was just like, you know, he has this like super high stress job, the super high stress tech job. And he's like really, really smart. And he has this, like all these fucking injuries, right? Like he's torn both of his quads, torn both of his pecs. He's ruptured a bicep tendon. Like, you know, he has the back injuries. And then like, he has this like crazy central nervous system sensitization because he can't get himself out of sympathetic because he takes like smart drugs to be able to like, be good at work. You know what I mean? Um, and then I, I just, I just told him, I was like, dude, like I can't help you. And, and, and it's not to say that you're beyond help, but I think you just need someone there in person four days a week to just go through training with you. And he's like, really? I was like, yeah, like it's not, it's not that you're unhelpable and I would be willing to do those things if I was local to you, but I can't cause I'm not local. And, you know, he's been training with the same guy in person for like the last, well, he left for me. So last five months and he's like, dude, he's like, it's way better. I've lost like 35 pounds. I feel so much better. This is awesome. And I was like, some people just, regardless of the level they're at, they just need in-person help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess um, if I'm looking for a good coach, probably... Man, I don't know. That that's changed so much over the years. But probably now one of the biggest things that I would say is super important is the relationship that you have with your coach. Now, I don't think you need to be best friends with your coach or anything like that, but when I say relationship, like I remember this is something that really sunk in maybe like a year and a bit ago. So I, I was talking to uh I don't know if you know Dr. Lisa Lewis, she's a psychologist. But anyways, it doesn't matter. But um so I was chatting with her and one of the things that she told me that I was surprised about when I looked into it, was able to validate it for myself was like, 
one of the best predictors of uh, a successful, I guess, like psychological intervention is the relationship you have with your, with your yes. psychologist. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, that's probably one of the, one of the biggest predictors. And I was like, holy fuck, like that's, that's pretty important. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so then I started looking at like just communication. I mean, you look at like Nick Winkleman's work and you look at all these other guys work and, and it's just like, so communication to me is probably one of the most important things and like the relationship and the trust and all of that stuff. So like, I don't necessarily know that there's like a best way to communicate. And I think that's going to change. It's like, I have some athletes who like for the fucking life of me, I can't get them to submit videos or like their check-ins. Like every week I'm sending them messages being like, Hey man, how's everything going? Da, da, da. Like, do you need anything from me? Is there anything I can do? Um, do we need to revamp the check-in process? So it's more, you know, like fitting for you and your lifestyle, whatever. And I just get a message back. Not nah, all good. Everything's progressing. Love the program. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, and, and I even tell them, I'm like, dude, at this point I'm guessing. And they're like, Hey, it's going great. I love it. Like, I'm just not going to check in. And I'm like, okay, sure. Right. So sometimes you get that, but then there's a handful of other people who like some of my top athletes, I don't think that they would be as good as they are. Like in terms of my span working with them, mm-hmm. if I didn't have like good communication, you know, yeah. if I didn't like record videos for them, if I didn't do all of those things. And so I think that the relationship you have is probably one of the most important things because it's like, you know, if, if a client says like, Hey, um, I really think that, you know, this is, I, I really think I need to do more of this. And it's just like, seems a little bit out there. And I'm like, I don't know why you would think that, but if I don't have any reason to like specifically say no, you know, um, I'm like, okay, you know, depending on where we're at in the in, in comp prep or whatever it is, then yeah, sure, why not? You know, and we'll try that. And I think just little things like that um, garner a lot of support and a lot of buy-in and a lot of appreciation that, hey, I'm actually working with someone who listens to me, who cares and all that stuff. So I think it's probably one of the most important things. I've already kind of gone over the other stuff, you know, like the education side of things, the experience, your ability to develop. Because I do think a lot of athletes, and, and this is something, you know, Kind of runs counter to my point a little well i don't know if it runs counter but i guess it's maybe a little bit more in support of your point um versus being counter to mine is that there's a lot of strong athletes who exactly like you said in your experience adopt strong athletes just because they're strong and they don't really get them any better but then at the same time they could still be like hey i coach so and so i don't know yeah x person or whatever and you're like holy fuck, you coach them that's crazy and there's this automatic assumption that 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 coach got them there, which may or may not be the case. There's a handful of coaches that I do know who have adopted a lot of athletes and who aren't very good in my opinion. And I'm obviously not going to name names. It's not really my jam, but um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'd say communication and relationship you have is probably one of the most paramount things in the environment that you train in as well. Cause yeah. I've, I've coached athletes who we have a great relationship, but I actually had to get them to change their gym because it's like, yo, that place is toxic. And yeah. The moment they changed, their results started completely changing because they didn't have a bunch of fucking haters. They didn't have a bunch of pussies and whiners and complainers. Yeah. Everything was aligned with that individual and their progress and their goals. They had a supportive environment. So I'm a big believer in those things are probably some of the biggest and most important aspects of, of like a coaching dynamic. Yeah. And I, I think the the thing that I've been very lucky to develop at this point in my coaching career is that I can say that I genuinely like all of my athletes. Mm-hmm. 
and I've been really like I've gone through like an intake that's, call that's somewhere. Earned, though. That's yeah. earned, right? Like now, because now, not to be like kind of dickish and be like, oh, I'm firing clients or like that, but like you really can have a little bit more choice in terms of who you're training. And probably the people who are drawn to you are going to be that type anyways now. Because yeah. you're, you've got more exposure. You've got more of a name for yourself, right? So it's been a lot easier because it's like, it's this, I view it the same way I view my relationship with my clients, the same way I view my relationship with like my friends, right? And I'm, always, I'm very giving with my friends. And if like, you know, if I have a guy like, and I always kind of tell people like my waking hours are like when I'm awake. It's like, it's a fucking 30 second voice note. And like, you know, if I'm watching a movie with my wife, I won't respond during the movie because I'm putting my phone away. But then when the movie's done, I'll respond. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, or if I'm driving, I'm not going to respond. But, um, you know, I genuinely want to help these people because I view them the same way that I view my friend, which is that I just want to help my friend, you know, and I'll film videos for them or like, you know, I'll get I'll get Jem to do, um, you know, assessments if, if they have something that's coming up and then we can start to like develop a plan of management together and like. I do all of that because I realized that the people who believe in our relationship, and, I, and this is something that I actually learned from, do you know who Dave Osborne is? Yep. David, David OPS. Um, so he did a two hour presentation on the coach athlete relationship. And it's, I think one of the most important points and one of the most important pieces of any, like if there's any coach that's coming up, like you have no idea how important the coach athlete relationship is until you watch this talk. Um, you know, and the, and the big thing that he talked about is like, you have to develop a coach athlete relationship with anyone of your, every single one of your athletes. And it's not always going to look the exact same, but you have to try your absolute hardest to develop that because two things happen with an effective coach athlete relationship. One, we have psychological development. So that person starts to grow as an individual. Um, but two, we have performance benefits. So they will actually literally just because we have a good relationship, they will improve and they will get better in their given sport. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm like, you know, as bad as it sounds to say, like a big part of my job is about delivering results. And if I don't deliver results, it kind of shows that I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And so I am trying to leverage as many things as possible so that I can give them the results that they've paid me for. And, and once I found that out about like about the coach athlete relationship and how there is like a litany of evidence and a liter litany of literature to support an effective coach athlete relationship, I was like, well, fuck, okay, this, this is the last nail in the coffin. I'm fucking ride or die for my, for my athletes. And a lot of my athletes are very loyal to me as well. Like I had a fucking dude, you know, who told me like two months ago, right? Like he had a back injury, we rehabbed him from the back injury. And then he said a deadlift PR the next month. He's like, dude, he's like, I am with you until you are done coaching. I was like, sick. Thank you. But that wouldn't have happened had I not given a shit. And that wouldn't have happened had I not been like, I'm taking this as like a personal offense that I can't get this person's back injury better. I'm referring out. I'm I'm talking to that clinician. I'm developing a plan of management with that clinician so that I can get this person back faster so I can get them the results that they asked for. Actually, that's one thing that's kind of difficult is coordinating with uh, either clinicians or coaches. I've got a couple athletes who I'll coach, I coach from their nutrition or their training or something like that. And every week I do, you know, like I'll do a video review on top of whatever communication that happens, but I do a video review of everything. And I'm like, here's what we're going to be doing moving forward. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. I review everything. And then I always will, uh, I do it on Google Sheets. So I always will tag the other person in it as well. 
And like, I can look back and after like six months, I've had zero responses from the clinician or from the other coach, none, no input, no feedback. I've directly tried reaching out and I've directly asked questions and stuff and nothing. So it's Dude, just like, I fucking, so I'm very exclusionary. Like I have two clinicians. Uh, so I, three, if you're three, if you count like in person here in Ottawa, but I have two clinicians that I will refer anyone out to one of which is my wife. So obviously I get the clinical impressions and the diagnosis from her because she's sitting next to me. And then the second is, is, is Seth Albersworth. And if it's not one of those two people, I don't fucking send it to them because I know that my wife's going to tell me what's going on. And I know that Seth's going to tell me what's going on because Seth gives a shit. And yeah. so if it's not one of those two people, I'm like, I would literally rather you see one of those two people virtually than go see someone in person. And that's the thing. So I do have two people that I normally recommend. Um, the thing is the virtual thing is, is a big thing for a lot of people to overcome mentally. Cause they want someone to just fix it. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I mean, e even diagnosing some of the things becomes really difficult virtually, right? So on, on the clinical side of things as well, I guess. But yeah, that, that's definitely a tricky one. But uh, at any rate, we're, we're a little over that hour mark. And so I want to be respectful of your time. But uh, where, where can people find you? Too? Yeah, so uh, you can find us at Kodiak Barbell on Instagram. Uh, if you want to buy cool shirts, it's Kodiak underscore LHBH. If you want to find me personally, it's at LaQuadzilla. Uh, and then you can check us out at kodiakbarbell.com if you have any inquiries about our services, uh, or you can send me an email at stu at kodiakbarbell.com. Awesome. So just want to confirm that's the Kodiak website, Kodiak Instagram, your Instagram, and then your email. Exactly. Sweet. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go check it out. Um, I bought quite a few things from Kodiak. Uh, I appreciate it. I always see it when it comes through. Uh, yeah, they put some really dope stuff out, so that's awesome. Make sure you guys go check it out. Give them a follow and show them some love. Stu, thanks so much for, for jumping on, man. It's been a great chat. Of course, brother. I really appreciate the time.